You know what is rotten and ever-present in our sinful selves? Blaming others. Blaming others. It's just ever-present in us. When we screw up, one of the first things we try to do is to shift the blame. Is to try to excuse it, try to justify what we've done or what we thought or what we felt. We try to justify it by finding something or someone to blame it on. Listen to these familiar words. The woman to whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate it. Of course, this is Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, and every sinful human being from their time forth has been shifting the blame. Whatever it's in your heart, you're trying to justify, well, it's someone else's fault, something else has happened, and whatever actions you have done, you try to find somewhere to pin it because you're certainly not the one that's the problem. Now take this consideration as we come back to Romans chapter 14 with me. Here we have two characters in this chapter, two people both trying to live for the glory of God. Both trying to live their lives doing whatever they're doing to please him. They wholeheartedly are living out their convictions so that God gets praise. So that they're doing what is right according to what they have understood. Two people, both trying to live for God, but they do so with different opinions. and Different convictions on certain things. But the problem is the, the unity of the church is fractured because some of them, and sometimes this is true of you and me, is we pick apart others' conduct instead of thinking about the corruption in our own hearts. And that's what was happening here in Romans 14. That was the temptation. Anyways, the, the warning that was there was, don't look at their heart. Look at your own. Think about your own. The warning is, you're judgmental and unwelcoming to the ones that God welcomes. That God embraces, you're judging them. Or, or you mock the person for doing what they are doing that is trying to exalt Christ, the one who shed his own blood for them, you're mocking them. And so there's these two characters here, and the problem was they were examining the wrong person. They were examining the other person when they should have been looking in the mirror, paying attention there in the mirror. These two characters in Romans chapter 14 are great case studies for us because they both have the overall right motive. You read Romans 14, you realize... They both have the right motivation. They want to glorify God. They, they realize that Christ has died for them. That he has stood in their place. That, they, that Christ took their sin upon himself. Endured all of God's wrath for them. Now lives interceding for them at the right hand of God the Father. And so these people want to live for Christ's renown. They want him to be known by everyone because they know that he is all satisfying. They have a right motivation in all that they're doing. They want others to know how precious and worthy Christ is of all of their affection. This is the goal of both of these characters. This is good. But they're broken and fallen like you and like me. And they have some problems here. Judgmentalism. They argue. They're causing strife and division where it's not necessary. They're mocking and tearing down other believers in Christ. They're discounting the faith of another who really is saved by God. And they cause others to stumble. All because they're looking at the wrong person. 
They're trying to judge all the characteristics and all the actions and all the attitudes and motives of another person when they should be examining their own lives. When they're faced with that, and when you and I are faced with a, a problem like that, we have the temptation, very much like them, is to shift the blame. So they tried saying, well, it's them. They're not doing it right, and that's, you know, that's an issue, and so I just want to fix that for them. They're trying to shift the blame. They're trying to look at others and say, well, it's my, whose job is it if it's not my job to call them out and to, to make sure they're correct in what they're doing, in the practices they are living out? Yes, there is a place for that in Christian brotherly love, sisterly love. We are to call one another to account before God. If we see another person in sin, we are to warn them of the danger of remaining in unrepentant sin. That is our job. It is our duty. It is a delight to hold one another to account. But here in Romans 14, it wasn't about sin. Here in Romans 14, it was about a difference of opinion. Something that you could flip a coin over and God's pleased with both of your options. And here they were trying to make a bigger deal out of it. They were trying to make a mountain out of a molehill. The temptation was that they were trying to blame the other person for why they're reacting this way. If they're being judgmental, they're trying to blame the other person for just being wrong. And so they're not being judgmental, they're just trying to help them. Or if the other person is uh, maybe far too liberal for them, and they're belittling them, they're blaming them for their liberalism. And saying, look, they, are they even a Christian? How, how dare they walk and act and talk like that? But yet, in their own heart, they're, they're belittling and that's wrong. And so Romans 14 is calling their own hearts into account here. Let me Look with me here at uh, chapter 14 of Romans. I'm just going to read verses 10 through 12. Let's hear God's word together. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. It's a very interesting placement of those words. Right in the middle of where these people are concerned about all the other actions and attitudes and motivations of someone else, Paul brings it to reminder is you will be held to account for yourself before the judgment seat of God. A few things that I want us to take a look at today, remembering the context of these two characters, both Christians, both of these people who have trusted in Christ for their sins to be forgiven, both are justified before God. That is, the record of wrong that stands against them no longer stands. They're justified. Romans 5.1 says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Or Romans 3.24, we're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. And what did that accomplish? Well, Colossians 2.14 says it. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us. Canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all of its legal demands. This Christ set aside, nailing it to the cross. So these are justified people. Their record has no sin on it when they stand before the God of the universe. Because it has righteousness and righteousness of Christ on it. Perfect righteousness. So judicially, in the courtroom, they are more than innocent. They are more than innocent. They are justified. These are the people who will certainly 
most assuredly go to heaven to be with God in all of eternity. They will go to heaven. There is, that's not being called into question here. So we remember this, and then we look at the following phrases. Second half of verse 10. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And then verse 12. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So yes, we know that those who do not believe in Christ will also stand final judgment, but it's a different judgment altogether because guess what? The record of debt still stands. It still stands. As according to Romans uh, chapter 1, they have heaped up wrath for themselves, standing against them. So there's a different kind of judgment for them coming who have not trusted in Christ, who have not looked to Christ to rescue them, to save them, to take on their sin and, and pierce it on the cross. No, but what Paul is addressing here is something different in this text. Look at verse 10b for me, with me. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. First, we ask, how does this make sense? How does this make sense? Since we're justified, therefore no longer condemned. And we know that Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 24, Truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And he does not come into judgment. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Jesus said those words in John chapter 5, 24. Do not come into judgment. So how does that make sense then? When here it says, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. We must understand the judgment spoken of being here in this text. is not about determining whether we have eternal life or do not have eternal life. Since Jesus has just said, we have passed from death to life. There is no more death. There is no more separation from God and punishment for our sin. That, that's no longer. We've passed into life. We're not condemned. And we know uh, Romans 8 verse 1. There's no condemnation for us who are in Christ. And we know that's because Christ took our condemnation. So then how is it that this text tells us we'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ? It's echoed in 2 Corinthians 5.10. It's very parallel to this verse in Romans 14. It says, For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Have you ever considered that, or did you think you were off the hook? You came to Jesus, there's no more judgment. Right? In one sense, yes. This judgment seat is not like a judge in a courtroom who determines whether you are guilty or innocent. This judgment seat is more like a judging panel at the Olympics. They don't judge whether you're an athlete or not, because you are. They judge whether you get a gold prize or not. Right? So that's still a judgment seat. It doesn't determine that you're not an athlete. The Olympic judges don't say, well, you're not an athlete, get out of here. It's already determined you are an athlete. So in the same sense, you and I, if we are found in Christ, it's already determined. We're a Christian. We're going to heaven. We're going to spend a life with God in Christ forever. If that's already determined, but what is to be determined? Well, the reward, the prize, where we stand with God. What has our life been made up of? What is it that is our life has shown what we have loved and lived for 
what we've treasured, ultimately. What's crazy about this text here in Romans 14, it says, we all will stand. And that's important. Because in this context, right, the person is possibly busy judging another person and thinking about another person's convictions and thinking about how they're living out their faith. It's talking about all of us, them and you. You. And that's why I love the beginning of verse 10 talks about you and you and it repeats it. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you, why do, uh, or you, why do you despise your brother? So either way, it's got this whole spectrum of people, and it includes you, and it includes me. <laughs> and then it says, we all. In case you didn't get that, in case you didn't realize that you're on one of these two spectrums, maybe, you're all included, says, we all will stand before the judgment seat of God. And what's crazy to me is that the, it uses the word stand, like that's possible. <laughs> Stand before the judgment seat of God? I don't know, because you read verse 11 and it says, we're going to bow. We're going to bow, we're going to be humble, we're going to be flat on the ground. Because guess what? That's the moment where we have to give an account to God, according to verse 12. We're going to stand and give that account before God. We're going to stand up. It's almost like when God says to Job, stand up and answer me. Right? Stand up and answer me. It's going to happen with us. We're going to stand before the judgment seat of God and give an account. So what is the judgment seat then? And what are we accountable for there? Because it says here, it's, in, it's emphatic, it's not that we are ever avoiding this judgment seat. But you always have to remember the judgment seat is not about determining whether you get to heaven or not. You're there. Because of Christ. You're covered in his blood. So then we ask, well, what is this judgment seat? This, and that's where verse 12 is very helpful. Each of us will give an account of himself to God. We'll give an account. We'll show the ledger what he's given us and what we've done with it. Right? Makes sense? It, it really makes sense. That's what it means to give an account, to show that everything is balanced out. There's a lot of things that we have to give account for on that day. One of them is our speech. We're going to give an account of how we talk. And, and even in, in Romans 14 here is especially thinking, these are Christians who are judging other Christians and maybe even saying, I don't think they're a Christian because they believe that thing. Because they, you know, they, they, wear, they think you can only wear skirts to church or they think you, know, um, you have to speak in tongues to be saved. I, I don't think they're a Christian. But that's, that's your speech and you better watch it because you're going to be accountable for your speech. Matthew chapter 12, verses 36 and 37, he says, Jesus says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people uh, will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you'll be justified, or by your words, you'll be condemned. Every careless word. And then Ephesians chapter 4.29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Let no corrupting talk. The amazing thing is, this, these two passages in Matthew and Ephesians both have a negative. So it says, um, uh, no careless word in Matthew, and in Ephesians, no corrupting talk. It has a negative. So the things we're to, to not do with our mouth, the, the account that we're supposed to have. If God has given you a mouth, it's not for corrupting talk. It's not for judgment. It's not for slander, for gossip. It's not for lashing out on people in anger. It's not what your mouth's for. It's the negative. So the things that will be, God will be disappointed in our use of our mouth in many ways. Because he gave us a mouth and that's not 
what it's for. But then it's also got the positives. It says that by your words you will be justified, as in it'll show that you belong to Jesus by how you have spoken, by how you've spoken life into people, by how you have preached the gospel, by how you have loved him and sang to him and give him glorious praise with your mouth. Ephesians says it in the positive. It says, but only such is good for building up. So your mouth, have you used it to build up other people? Have you used it to give grace to those who hear? And if so, what will God say? But well done, good and faithful servant. I gave you a mouth and you use that mouth. You use the tool I gave you for me. Well done. Thank you for utilizing what I've given you well. You all know, or maybe you know, the parable of the talents. Where that phrase, well done, good and faithful servant, comes from. Where the master gives these talents to the servants and sees what they do with it. How did they invest it? How did they utilize what God had given them? And when they come back, the one had, had used what God gave him and increased just a, a huge abundance. And God said, well done. And the other one, he, he did his best and according to his knowledge, but he still increased. He still used what God gave him for his glory and for the good of the kingdom. So God said, well done. But then there was one who didn't use what God gave him. Instead, he, he just buried it. And so he didn't use his mouth to praise God or to give glory to God. Instead, he just didn't use it at all. What did God say to him? Depart from me, you wicked, you worker of wickedness, and you're lazy and slothful. On that day, it was just like, man, what have you done with what I gave you? Why didn't you use it? It was for my use in my kingdom, and you just buried it. Not well done. It's crazy to think. So we'll give an account for our speech. But beyond that, because that's the thing, you know, you might, you might have a real good filter. You might be able to control your tongue pretty good. Maybe you've had a lot of practice controlling your tongue, but you also give account for the thoughts, right? Where does the garbage out of our mouth come from but our hearts and our thoughts? And so you might have a good filter, and you might really be able to tame your tongue by God's grace, but is your heart just full of slander and gossip and hatred so that there's insults in your heart and your mind toward other people? Even though you might not mention it, you might not say it. We're going to give an account for our thought life, too. Because guess what? Who's in control of that? And that's the beauty of the thought life, is you can't blame that on anyone else, right? You can try to blame your speech on other people uh, or your situation, your circumstance, but you can't blame your thoughts on anyone. So you're going to have uh, account for what you have thought and, and what has motivated you and what you have done. You're going to give an account for your thought life. You're going to give an account for your gifts, and, and yes, including your natural gifting, is God has gifted you with, with singing. Have you used it for him? If God has gifted you with art, if God, if God has gifted you with leadership, if God has gifted you with uh, strength, have you used the natural gifts that God has given you for him? You're going to give an account for that because he gave it to you for his glory. Now, did you use it for his glory? But also he gives a circumstance, right? The gift of an English Bible. You have... How many copies of the Bible? And have you used it? Have you used it? Have you been a good steward of that? When you give an account of all the Bibles you have, and the eyes that you have to read it, and the mind that you have to comprehend it, when you give an account, how will you stand? Will it be that you are a good steward of what God has given you in the Bible, or in this country, the freedom? You have the freedom to tell others to come to Jesus. We have some brothers and sisters in Christ where it's illegal to do that. They cannot invite another person to faith in Christ. They'll go to jail. Amon Jordan, 
friend of mine lived there, and there were secret police planted all around. And they would ask him, can I have a Bible? Because they knew that if he gave them a Bible for the sake of converting them, he would go to jail. So there's secret police planted all around trying to trap missionaries, trying to trap Christians into attempting to tell them about Jesus and attempting to call them out of their, their uh, whether it's atheism or in there it's is Islam and Muslim, trying to call them out of their faith into a faith in Lord Jesus, they'll go to jail and sometimes even be uh, persecuted and killed for that. And so there's secret police trying to trap them all the time. Can I have a, can I have a, can you tell me about Jesus? Can you just give me a copy of the Bible? It's illegal to give someone a copy of the Bible. So then here, our circumstance is not like that whatsoever. So then when we give an account for that, we give an account for our freedom to tell others. Our, our ability to have 100 copies of the Bible you could give away. Our ability, what will we have to account for? Will the ledger balance out? All the freedom you had, did you use it? Right? And so it's terrifying to think. It's terrifying to think sometimes it's like all that we have been given in our speech, the ability that we have to, to lift up people, to encourage people, to sing God's praises, to tell others about him with our speech, our thought life. We have the ability to be meditating and thinking about things all day long. Are we thinking about God and his glory and what we might do for him? He's given us gifts in our, in our natural selves, but also in circumstance. Have we used them for him? He's given us other resources and finances. Have we used them for him? Matthew chapter 6, well-known passage, uh, 19 and 21. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and dust, uh, sorry, where, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth or rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So with what God has given you financially and the resources you have, what you have physically that you can use for other people, are you using it for them? If you were to give an account for all that he has given you, it's crazy, right? I, I read this story of like this farmer who would lay his, he would lay 10 potatoes out on the table and he'd write on the one God's portion. And they'd look and he'd say, that is so not right. You got 10 potatoes on the table and I get nine of them? And God only gets one. How is God's portion only 10%? He just felt pitiful giving just one potato back to the Lord's work. And he thought, like, what am I doing here? Why do I need nine of these? And God, who's trying to, uh, you know, feed the homeless and do whatever, only gets one. It's just uh, a real perspective bringer. But we'll give an account for our finances. What do we do with what God gave us? You may think you can impress others, but at the end of the day, if you stand before God and give an account, how does your spending hold up before him? Right? So we ought to think about the account we're going to give on that. We're going to, more than that, what's more terrifying is we're going to give an account for our time. 24 hours a day. By how many years you live. That's 365 days even in a year is a, a lot of days that we have to account for. We have to give an account for. What did you do with 365 days? Did you read your Bible? 100 days? Because that's not even a third of the year. Did you, like, <laughs> I struggle to think about my time and my time management and my time usage as like, man, I feel like I waste it. 
John Piper recalls as a young boy sitting uh, in a service where his dad was preaching the gospel and a man in his 80s had given his life to the Lord, came to the front, was talking with his dad, and John Piper was sitting there, and he heard this man just weep. He's in his 80s and finally came to the Lord and said, I've wasted my life. I've wasted my life. He realized that all of his time that he was doing whatever was wasted because it wasn't lived for God. So then John Piper, that moment, as a teenager, determined, I will not waste my life. So I'm going to redeem every moment. And uh, um, Jonathan Edwards, the great Puritan, he, he re- resolved to never waste a single moment of his day. And he reviewed that resolution every week so that he wouldn't forget. We waste a lot of time. And we're going to give an account to God for it. And man, are we going to ever be speechless, aren't we? He says, what did you do with your time? What did you do with your 40, 50, 60 years? What did you do with it? All those days. We'll get an account for our time. But here's the thing. Remember at the heart of all of this, the context. Is this is believers. Just because you may have wasted your time and wasted your money and had corrupting talk and not used the gifts and the situations God gave you, just because of all of that doesn't mean you lose your soul. You don't lose your soul. If you're found in Christ and you've trusted in him, even though you're a failure, you'll be saved. You will be saved. And here's how it will happen. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11 to 15 says this. And that's important. You can write that down. You can read it again later. 1 Corinthians 3, 11 to 15. For no one can lay a foundation other than which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on a foundation with gold and silver and precious stones, wood and hay and straw, each one's work will become manifest on the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives he will receive a reward if anyone's work is burned up he will suffer loss though he himself will be saved but only as through fire salvation is not on the line there but, but what remains will be, right? What do you have for your life to offer to Jesus and say, look what I did, this was for you because you saved me? Or will it all be burned up? Will it all be just fluff and hay? Things that you thought were important in life, words that you didn't really hold to account, it'll all be burned up and you'll just smell like a campfire and have nothing to show for it. It's terrifying, but yet... There's hope because you have tomorrow and you have the next day to redeem the time, redeem your finances, redeem your speech. We all have it. And we do it knowing that this is a, a, a way that we give glory and praise and adoration to the God who saved us and who is not robbing that from us, who is never going to take that away from us. We praise him for what he has done, but we remember to look at ourselves and examine ourselves because we will give an account of ourselves to God. Verse 11 says, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. We shall say to God, You are God, and here's what I've done. Verse 12, So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Now that word himself and each one is very important. Because in the context of Romans 14, the temptation is, well, what about them? 
What about their convictions? Well, they're, they're living very liberally as a Christian. Or they're super legalistic as a Christian. What about them? And here it calls us to have a proper perspective. It says, what about you? What about you? Because each one will give an account of himself. You don't have to give an account for them. You give an account for you first and foremost. Yes, your job is to encourage them in the faith. Equip them. Work with them. Minister to them and for them and beside them. But it's not your job to judge them. It's your job to look at yourself, examine yourself, because you will give an account of yourself to God. In your speech, with how you use the gifts God has given you, the resources and time that God has given you, when when you have wasted it, when you have blown it, the question is, do you blame others? Do you shift the blame and say, well, I was busy worrying about them. Yeah, but that caused you to be judgmental. I was busy trying to do this. Well, did you think about how that would affect your own account before God? Do you try to just blame others when you realize when something like this convicts you and examines you and really hurts? Do you now try to justify the time you spent or the time you didn't spend with God? Right? And that's what we're prone to do. So the warning is there. Each one of us is to give an account of himself to God. So let's do that. Let's be able to stand before God five years from now and say, God, I, I, took, I took very seriously my time. I took very seriously the, the ability that you gave me to read. I took very seriously um, th- that I have a gift to sing or that I enjoy music and I can, I can hear songs of praise of you all day long. I took very seriously that and I didn't want to waste a moment. I redeemed the time. When you're doing dishes, what are you listening to? What are you thinking about? When you're going for a walk, are you using that time? When you're driving, are you just listening to rubbish? Like what? What are we doing when we have the time that God has given us? What are we doing with the resources God has given us, with the mouth God has given us? For our kids, when they disobey, I try to make it about how they've misused what God gives them. So they hit another person. I don't want to let them hit other people, but I want to tell them that it doesn't please God because God gave them hands not to hit. They're misusing what God gave them. And so they're not just disappointing me. I want them to realize they're disappointing God when they hit another person, when they lash out at another person. That's not how God uh, designed your mouth to work. It's not how God designed your hands to work. I'm trying to instill it in my kids because I know that one day they're going to give an account to God for how they use their mouth and their hands and their intellect and their time. Because I, too, come under this, as do you. And I'm so thankful for the grace of God that that at the foundation of even this this thing that, that makes us tremble, at the foundation of it all is grace. So you may have blown it for 50 years, but there's grace. There's grace. God will forgive you. Confess your sins, and he's faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. To purify for you tomorrow so that his mercy is new in the morning, and he gives you enough grace for the day to get through by his strength and utilize it in good ways for his glory. So that one day, even at the end of the day, you can say, I'm so thankful that God helped me. Because I would have normally been lazy or just whatever. And God has helped me through it all because I've, I've really kind of taken captive my thoughts to Christ. Taken captive my life in all that I have for him. Because my life is for him. It's about him. And so will be my eternity. And I'll sing his praises forevermore. Let me pray for us. Well, God, you are just. And it amazes us that we would even be forgiven judicially, that we can have our sins cleansed and 
and wiped off our record, we thank you for our justification because Christ has died on our behalf as a sinner. Took all your wrath that we, uh, we deserved and now stands victorious so that we too can stand by grace with his strength, with the Holy Spirit helping us, guiding us. And so God, we thank you so much that you spoke to, through your word as well today to our hearts even to the things that we know that we have wasted, the things that uh, w- when it comes to giving an account for them, we will uh, we'll be speechless. We will say, woe, woe is me. But God, we thank you for grace. Thank you that you will not cast us off forever because we have we've dropped the ball. Thank you for the Lord Jesus who holds us tight and for the Holy Spirit who guarantees our inheritance. And then we thank you for new mercies tomorrow that we may give an account for tomorrow as well. And and we have control even in this moment to to ask for your help and to think about the ways in which we have failed and and disappointed ourselves and disappointed you. And we can ask for your help in that area for tomorrow and for the rest of our lives so that we would not waste our lives. But we would live them for your glory in the way that you designed because we know that that satisfies us and it brings much pleasure to your heart. We want to do that and we need your help in Christ's name. Amen.